I've read a lot of the literature uh, uh, from coming out from the opponents of ratification of the Convention on the Rights of the Child. And I should say up front, I don't love everything in the convention. I don't think it's a perfect convention. But I've been absolutely mystified and astonished at some of the misinformation about what the effects of this treaty would be. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today. I'm Craig Williams from a sunny Southern California. My co-host Bob Ambrosi is on vacation this week. And I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court and have a book out called How to Get Sued. We'd also like to thank our sponsors, SunTrust, who offers private wealth management solutions for attorneys and legal firms at suntrust.com slash law, and Clio, a web-based practice management software program for lawyers at goclio.com. Well, today we're going to be talking about the United Nations Convention on the Rights of a of the child, and it's a human rights treaty which sets out the civil, political, economic, and social, along with cultural rights of children. Senate Resolution 519 opposes the United States signing of this treaty. The legal argument is that by signing a treaty, it would supersede U.S. law and, more importantly, the laws of individual states when it comes to family issues. So today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to have a look at the U.N. Convention on the Rights of the Child, Senate Resolution 519, and the potential legal conflicts. Our first guest today is Sarah A. Dillon. She is a professor of law at Suffolk University Law School, where she has taught a variety of international law subjects since 2001. More recently, she has taught and published in the fields of international trade law and policy, as well as public international law and international children's rights. She writes the blog Children's Rights and Social Orphans, which can be found at allthesocialorphans.wordpress.com. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Professor Dillon. Thanks, Craig. Great to be here. And our next guest is Michael P. Ferris. He is the president of parentalrights.org and chairman of the Home School Legal Defense Association. Since founding HSLDA in 1983, Mr. Ferris has used his extensive experience in both politics and appellate litigation to defend parental rights and help grow the organization to over 80,000 member families. Serving as the president of parentalrights.org, Ferris devotes much of his time to meeting with members of Congress and delivering speeches across the country, all in an effort to raise support for the passage of a parental rights amendment. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Mr. Ferris. Thanks so much. Good to be here. Well, Sarah, can we first get some background on the uh, UN Convention on the Rights of the Child? Can you give us some history and let our listeners know what this is about? Sure. Um, like a number of the other United Nations conventions on, on human rights topics, the Convention on the Rights of the Child was the culmination of many years of negotiation designed to make this international statement that children are the holders, the bearers of their own rights. They're not just um, appendages of their communities or their families, but they actually deserve special consideration in the formation of policy. Now, like other human rights conventions, this is a very broad, sweeping convention. It's very general. 
It's designed to be implemented by a wide variety of states according to the mores, the beliefs, the conventions, the the understandings of family life in those various countries. And indeed, as I'm sure you know, every country in the world, apart from the United States and Somalia, has ratified this important convention. It's been around for about 20 years. Right. Well, I understand the Clinton administration originally signed it, but never submitted it to Congress. Michael, what what is the um, what's the opposition to this? Well, this is a binding treaty, and under the Supremacy Clause, uh, America approaches treaty law much different than the vast majority of countries in the world. Britain, that has no written constitution, you only undertake moral and political obligations and no legal obligations on the domestic front when Britain ratifies a treaty. Um, So the United States... um, pretty much singularly in the world, has uh, a provision like the uh, the Supremacy Clause, the South African Constitution, something similar, the Romanian Constitution, but a very, very narrow group of countries that take a legal position like ours. And so under the Supremacy Clause, anything that's in the treaty that conflicts with state laws and state constitutions, the treaty overrides. And uh, virtually all law in America on families and children is state law. So the treaty would is positionally superior to everything in American law or virtually everything in American law by the operation of our own supremacy clause. So uh, unlike other nations, we've got a very different approach to treaties, and we have to take it far more seriously. The, all the Islamic countries, for example, uh, uh, adopted the treaty, became parties to the treaty, but uh, they took reservations that say, essentially, anything in Sharia law that conflicts with the treaty, we're obeying Sharia law. So it's not a real ratification of the treaty, uh, and, and it's not produced any real effects for kids pretty much any place in the world. Are there direct conflicts with state law? Um, multiple direct conflicts. The the core provisions of the treaty, uh, the best interest of the child standard is the biggest uh, uh, violation of state law principles. Because what it does is it allows, to get, uh, allows uh, the government uh, to get uh, the ability to make decisions for children according to the best interest of the child without first proving harm. Today, you cannot have the government intervening unless the family's broken, either in a divorce situation or there's been proof of abuse or neglect. And until that happens, families get to decide what they think is best for children. But under the treaty, the um, necessary predicate of, of that kind of proof is removed. And the, uh, the treaty would directly operate to say that the government can intervene whenever it believes it is appropriate and decide, we think a, a better decision could be made here, even without proof of harm. Sarah, are there some uh, misconceptions or uh, misunderstandings about the purpose of this treaty? Well, I've I've read a lot of the literature uh, uh, coming out from the opponents of ratification of the Convention on the Rights of the Child. And I should say up front, I don't love everything in the convention. I don't think it's a perfect convention. But I've been absolutely mystified and astonished at some of the misinformation about what the effects of this treaty would be. Uh, I'm reminded, in fact, of the health care debate and the pulling the plug on grandma uh, kind of approach to describing what health care reform would entail. And primarily, I see the opposition coming from people who are interested in homeschooling, interested in abortion and reproductive rights, reproductive services, and juvenile justice issues. In As a general matter, even though, of course, human rights treaties become the law of the land, that is, in our Constitution, we wanted to make clear that when we undertook international obligations, they would be binding on the entire country, that does not mean that suddenly some sort of you 
usurping procedures are created through the Convention on the Rights of the Child. That's completely and utterly false. The United States, as you know, uh, has implemented human rights conventions and has entered reservations and declarations and understandings, primarily uh, saying that the provisions of the treaty would be non-self-executing. That is, they could not be argued in court or in tribunals by themselves without some action of Congress, let's say, to, to implement via legislation. But, but beyond that, the Convention on the Rights of the Child is designed to create an atmosphere of advocacy for children and their rights. There's nothing in the treaty that says that certain specific approaches taken to children and their education, for instance, in the United States, would be swept away. There's nothing even, there's no content that even remotely touches upon that. And where the United States is really losing out is we don't have any influence on the Committee of the Rights of the Child. We can talk about the committee uh, uh, more as we get into this discussion, but we are completely outside the convention structure, and so we lose our opportunity to lead on children's rights, and we do a lot of things very well in this country, and I think it's a shame that that we've simply uh, stood back and not been involved in the development of ideas around children's rights. Well, there's so much misinformation in what she just said. Um, I don't know where to begin, but let me just start by giving a little bit more of my background. I'm the chancellor of Patrick Henry College, where I teach constitutional law, and I have an advanced uh, postgraduate degree from the University of London in public international law, where I've completed courses on the laws of treaties and international rights of the child. Now, the website on the children's rights uh, side of this debate has a... Uh, discussion of nine so-called myths. There's not a single legal citation in the entire uh, assessment of the arguments about this treaty, except for one Supreme Court decision that stands for no proposition other than treaties don't override the U.S. Constitution, and nobody says anything to the contrary. The, the Our website has detailed, footnoted legal citations of both international law and American law to demonstrate the points that we make. And so the, the assessment that we're the ones that are making uh, unsubstantiated legal claims is just simply not the case. I mean, our research is meticulous. I would invite people to go to the Parental Rights website and look at the 10 things you need to know about the structure of the treaty, which are carefully footnoted, 10 things you need to know about the substance of the treaty, which are carefully footnoted. Now, well, Michael, you're not, you're not saying that the United Nations is going to come in and take over state family law courts. No, of course not. They're, what they're going to do is state family law courts are going to use the law in the Convention on the Rights of the Child to make their decisions. And uh, an Ohio judge, under the mistaken impression that the Senate had ratified the treaty, ordered two parents to st stop smoking in their own home. Now, personally, I hate smoking. I would wish nobody would smoke in the world. But for an Ohio judge to use the treaty that he thought was ratified and ordered parents to stop smoking, a federal district judge in New York has on two occasions used the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child under the doctrine of customary international law to order various remedies in, in two very disparate cases. The Supreme Court of the United States has used the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child as an interpretive tool in two cases, um, uh, the, the Roper Juvenile Death Penalty case and the recent Sullivan uh, 
case out of the Florida on juvenile uh, LWAP, life in prison without parole, in which I wrote a brief for, for 16 members of Congress on the international law issue that the majority cites. They disagree with me, but at least they cite my brief. And the so the idea that this treaty will not be used in court is an absolute fiction. The 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 true experts on this treaty say that it, it contains components that would be self-executing and other components that would not be self-executing. The ban on spanking would be self-executing. The, the requirement that the United States stops spending more on its military than it does on children's social programs, which is an interpretation by the Committee on the Rights of the Child interpreting the treaty relative to uh, Egypt and Singapore, that those countries were in violation of the treaty for spending too much on their military. That would not probably be self-executing in the current legal atmosphere. But Harold Coe on the Supreme Court, uh, who's currently the State Department legal advisor, I'm not so sure it wouldn't be self-executing um, with Harold Coe on the court. But we're, we're simply uh, not in that position today. And, um, and, and we are not in the position of saying this will not be directly enforceable uh, in our system. It's, it's just fiction. I mean, the, the, the other speakers just told you the party line. Go look and see how it works in other countries, and you'll see quite different from what you've just been told. Sarah? Well, I'm far from the party line. I'm often a critic of the United Nations myself, and I think if you see my children's rights book, which is very comprehensive, I take a very independent view of these issues, and I have a lot of sympathy with what the parents' rights group, are, what they're interested in preserving. I understand uh, the idea very well that you want to re retain family control. What I don't understand is the very inflammatory, exaggerated approach to what the treaty, what the convention would probably uh, bring about. I, I, I just don't understand the idea that our Constitution would be usurped. What I was talking about was not a, a point by point analysis of whether particular provisions of the treaty were a good candidates for being seen as self executing. That is, were they clear and specific on their face or not? I was talking about uh, the, the possibility, the likelihood, if this is ever ratified, which I doubt, that there could be an actual statement to the effect that uh, the convention should be considered by the courts as non-self-executing, that is, without more implementation at the legislative level, that it shouldn't be argued directly in court. And I agree that it would be likely that in debates about children that already exist, and this is the point, that are already taking place in the United States, people with various views could use the convention to make particular arguments of an interpretive nature, that is, a normative nature. This is the way children ought to be treated. And I think that's where the real issue is here, and that's where the strong opposition is coming from, that there's some kind of fear that in the culture wars, if you want to look at it that way, that this would be one more piece of ammunition for one side. I don't myself see it that way. And when you look at the world in terms of child trafficking, police abuses, uh, problems of street children, issues of that nature, the egregious violations of children's rights around the world, I don't look at it simply in terms of American culture wars. I look at this convention as a means of arguing, of, of advocating for the rights of children in various countries, as I said. I, I don't think it's fair to the convention and its purposes, or to any human rights convention, to reduce it to questions like, you know, should teenagers have uh, access to contraception? That's an argument that's already going on in the United States. And I understand 
the position of that group that, well, states have to retain uh, these these rights and powers because that's where we can have some influence and so forth. But I think to imply that this convention is going to turn the tables in all of those culture wars and debates that we already have going on is simply false. There is no procedure by which the Committee on the Rights of the Child, a body of experts elected by the uh, states' parties to the convention, would actually have some control over United States policy or U.S. state policy. That's just not true. And uh, there was a reference to false ratification. It's true because the convention is so broad and sweeping and the variety of cultural practice, religious belief, and so forth around the world is just so various. It's so vast. It's true that many countries simply ignore aspects of the convention they don't like. I'm not sure that makes it false ratification. I'm just not sure of that. Michael, it, you know, it seems like the parentalrights.org's opposition to it seems to focus on the issue of whether or not it's self-executing. If the treaty were not self-executing, would you oppose it? Absolutely, because uh, if, if for no other reason, there'd be plenty of other reasons, but, uh, well, actually two reasons. Number one is if the United States undertakes to, uh, to ratify a treaty under the most pr- basic principle of international law, you keep your promises. If we say we're going to ratify this treaty, we should just ratify it, and we should uh, obey all of it. We, we shouldn't be allowed to pick and choose and say, well, we're going to obey this part of it, and, that, and then we're going to uh, not obey that part of it. If we want to be but a we good do, example Michael, we do that all the, the time the in world, treaties. We issue reservations and understandings well, and memorandums and everything else. we issue reservations, and that would be else. different. But just, just a general reservation on, on self-execute, or, you know, whether it's self-executing or not would not be sufficient. You'd have to basically take out all of the embedded... Well, there's just, I mean, if I were going to write the reservations, there would be hundreds and hundreds of reservations. And even then, I would still oppose it for this reason. The United States has the obligation to implement the treaty, which means Congress, under the Necessary and Proper Clause, has the authority to legislate all law that was necessary for the implementation of the treaty. So we've effectively shifted all family law issues from the state legislatures to the Congress. And the Congress simply, um, uh, is not in a position to ratify, you know, to be dealing with children's issues like this. That's the proper job for the states. And Congress, you know, is an inept as it is trying to deal with all the stuff that they're trying to deal with now, much less trying to implement all the laws on education, health care, et cetera, for kids. Is there anything in the convention that you do like? The only things I like in the convention are already in American law. The requirement that kids need to have a lawyer if they're charged with crimes. The fact that kids should have due process when they're charged with crimes. There's a lot of things like that that are already parallel American law. There's a lot of nations that are parties to the treaty that don't have juvenile court systems. Um, and the idea that this treaty, you know, we, we bring out the child trafficking and all those problems, which are horrible problems. But the question is, has the treaty in 20 years done anything to help. Child trafficking is far worse today than it was 20 years ago. If, this, if a treaty is a good way to fight it, what we're doing is we're giving uh, people an illusion that this approach to law makes a difference in people's lives, that it helps kids. And the fact of the matter is, it doesn't help kids. And I don't believe in, in vain promises of this kind. If we're going to help kids, let's find ways that really work. This treaty doesn't work to protect kids. And I, I basically think any U.S. senator who thinks that we can't make the law in America that is necessary to protect American children 
Um, I think he had to resign his office because he's saying I'm incompetent to make the laws that are necessary to protect American children. Myself and my fellow lawmakers in this nation are incompetent. Are incompetent. We've got to depend on these 18 experts in Geneva to tell us what the legal standards will be because their interpretations are entitled to weight as to the meaning of the treaty. And, and so when they interpret the treaty and tell the other nations, we don't care about your culture. And if you read the, the, the um, reports from the other nations, they say you've got to change your culture. You've got to change your culture. You've got to change your culture. And the idea that this is respectful of other cultures is not consistent with reading the reports of the Committee on the Rights of the Child. Well, there are some things that uh, I think there's not very many Americans that would want uh, China to change its culture on uh, child labor. Uh, what's well, wrong with that? Yeah, but how are you going to do that in an effective fashion? Uh, you're going to do that by changing Chinese law. You're not going to do it by a treaty that China is just going to ignore. And so if, if we pass – if if America uh, ratifies this treaty, it doesn't help Chinese kids. I mean, the idea that it does is, is preposterous. And even if America got one of the 18 seats on this tribunal – by the way, there is a, a fourth pending protocol that would create a com- – individual complaint mechanism. So there would be a future, uh, if that you know protocol gets adopted and ratified and so on, there would be an individual complaints procedure like there is under CEDAW currently. But uh, that, that individual complaint system doesn't yet exist, but it's in process. So the idea that we can never go in an inter- international tribunal and litigate these things is, a, is also a fiction. The, um, but you're not going to help Chinese kids by America ratifying it. All you're doing is putting America under the obligation that China supposedly is under, but simply ignores. Sarah, let's turn it to you, but let's turn the tables on you as well. Is there anything in this convention that you think shouldn't be passed or shouldn't be adopted? I think the controversial parts of the, I mean, some of it is just very predictable and ordinary. There's a great deal made of this idea of the best interest, but really it's a kind of general uh, statement about the best interest of the child being taken into account in the creation of policy. But I think some of the the sections that were put in are advocated by by the Reagan administration, actually, which are sort of liberationist rights from Article 12 and, and following of the convention, that children are free to form their own views and freedom of expression and so forth. I think these also have been misinterpreted. I, I mean, they could be taken out, really, from, from my point of view. I think they're very ambiguous. Does that mean against the family, against the culture, or against the state? My own feeling is that some of them reflect Cold War thinking, that it was wrong to take children and sort of indoctrinate them by the state, ironically, uh, against the wishes of the community or, or, or the family. On the other, you know, I, I think the, the convention is very uh, idealistic in general as well. I, it depends on what you think about human rights treaties, perhaps in general. Uh, I think that the statements that were made were just now were, were pretty extreme and could, could be leveled against any human rights convention. Is it worthwhile to articulate the rights of women or the rights of children? Well, Beauty's in the eye of the beholder. I think if you've got a country engaged in egregious violations, say with lots of bonded uh, child labor or torture or female genital cutting or child marriages, I think it is important and valuable. Maybe it's not measurable. Uh, maybe the, the effects are not always as specific or immediate as we would like. But I think it is worthwhile to be able to say to countries that are egregious violators, here's why you can't. It's hard to measure that over time, what the actual effects are 
are going to be. But if you ask NGOs, say, in South Asia, they'll tell you that the, the main effect of a treaty like this is to inspire civil society and to give people in those societies arguments that they can use against their government or against other structures in society that, uh, that, that have these uh, pernicious effects. And I think there are cultural practices that just that just are negative in terms of they, they cause suffering. I don't think that means change your culture across the board. Nobody thinks that. But it does mean that certain aspects of cultural practice are negative. We have a good record on children's rights, and there are things we do that are not very good. Foster care seems to me an area that we consider simply to be an aspect of family law. Foster care placement is an area where a children's rights analysis would help. It would help us to look and say, wow, is it fair for us to put children in all these different placements? I myself have a very strong interest in child permanency, in adoption, and in eliminating the need for a lot of foster care. That's the kind of area where I think we could have a tremendously positive influence on the Committee of the Rights of the Child, rather than leaving it to be European-dominated the way it is now. And in terms of the protocol, it would be an optional protocol to hear individual petitions and complaints. We could just not enter into that if we didn't want to. I think there's a great difference between ignoring a treaty and uh, and and seeing it in a nuanced way, where you get into the spirit of the thing, you accept it within your own political traditions and culture and your constitutional tradition. I mean, it really it really is a far more nuanced process, I think, than the opposition uh, is is admitting. Well, Sarah, Michael, I need to interrupt for just a moment here. We're going to be taking a short break. When we return, we'll be talking more about Senate Resolution 519 and the U.N. Convention on the Rights of the Child. Has the recent economic climate affected the financial goals of your firm? Get back on track with help from SunTrust. Our private wealth management legal specialty group works solely with lawyers and their firms to deliver unique solutions designed for the legal community. SunTrust advisors give you sound guidance on everything from maximizing cash flow and waiting through benefits planning to understanding how to retain attorneys and staff. Learn more at www.suntrust.com legal. SunTrust. Live solid. Bank solid. SunTrust Bank. Member FDIC. Imagine how much easier managing your practice would be if your practice management software was web-based. Your practice would be available anywhere you have an internet connection, completely secure, backed up continuously, and most importantly, easy to use, allowing you to spend your valuable time building your practice instead of managing technology. Start simplifying your practice today with Clio. Sign up for a free, fully functional 30-day trial at www.goclio.com. Use promotional code L2L for a 25% discount. Engage your brain. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and listen to all the great legal podcasts. It's the office calling again. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, yeah. I need to do that, too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. That's perfect. The office can wait. 
Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're joined by Michael P. Ferris. He is the president of ParentalRights.org and chairman of the Homeschool Legal Defense Association, along with Sarah Dillon. She's a professor of law at Suffolk University Law School. Um, Michael, obviously there's some pretty strong opposition to this. Um, is this a bipartisan opposition in Congress, or is there a group that's in favor of it? Uh, kind of explain the process that we're in right now. It's been signed before by a president. There's been some rumors that President Obama's going to sign it again, and, and Hillary uh, Clinton is going to sign it on behalf of the country. W- where does all that stand, and, and where's the opposition to this? Well, if, if uh, either uh, President Obama or Hillary Clinton signed the treaty, it would be pu- uh, purely symbolic. It's been signed by the United States in 1995 by Madeleine Albright, who, under her authority as ambassador to the UN at the time, as directed by President Clinton. So it's signed. We're, we're signatories, which doesn't mean that we're parties. Um, and it's been sitting in the Senate, or in the, excuse me, in the State Department ever since 1995, and hasn't been transmitted to the Senate for 15 years, mainly because the political judgment is that it's dead on arrival. Technically, if you ask the State Department, it's because they're working on reservations. Well, they've been working on reservations for 15 years. And and so um, there is good reason to believe that President Obama will direct his uh, State Department or uh, otherwise to send the treaty to the Senate for ratification. Exactly that time frame, we don't know. Uh, but there are currently 20 co-sponsors of Senate Resolution 519, which is an opposition to the treaty, which is uh, they're all Republicans at this stage. Um, there are a number of Democrats who uh, we've uh, approached, uh, but uh, uh, they aren't willing to buck the leadership of the Democrat um, party in, in the Senate. So, um, you know, so far there are no Democrats on board, but uh, they have to get 67 votes to be able to ratify. And... I am dubious that they can get 67 votes uh, unless they try to do something that's, you know, essentially uh, a midnight uh, submission. If you follow the normal rules of submitting treaties for ratification, this will not be ratified under the current political environment. Well, Michael, I looked at your website, and one of the 10 things that you note right. in the in, in there is that uh, children under this treaty would have the right to choose their own religion, potentially right. a different religion other than their parents. Right. What's wrong with that choice? Well, that's um, a choice that I believe that families should be allowed to make. Uh, If I'm talking about a 17-year-old and it's my child, then I'm going to make a decision uh, about my own child's maturity. If it's a 13-year-old, I'm going to tell him, you know, you're going to come to church with me. Now, nobody can stop a child from believing something. This is about behavior, about how often you go to church. I personally litigated a case in Washington State when Washington State, for a season, implemented a law that contained the two core provisions of the Convention on the Rights of the Child. And a judge in Island County, Washington, Superior Court, told my clients, if you want to keep custody of your child, you can only go to church once a week, because I think um, going to church three times a week, they went Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night prayer meeting. He said, that's too much church for a 13-year-old boy. And so if, if you want to keep custody of your son, you've got to go to church once a week. Those kinds of decisions don't belong to the government. And and so uh, under the best interest of the child standard, the child it's an illusion to think that the child gets the, the final right. The child has uh, the right to express their wishes, their concerns, their desires. But ultimately, some adult is going to make the final decision, and it's really going to be dependent of if we're going to retain American law and say parents get to make that decision, or we we'll go to the treaty and we say government gets to make that decision. Well, we're just about reached the end of our program, and we need to kind of wrap up and get your final thoughts along with your contact information. So, Sarah, let's turn it over to you. Well, I just think it's 
a tremendous mistake to look at the extreme margins of the issues here. I think we should look at it in a broad and comprehensive way. I think overall the convention has a positive influence. Uh, Article 5 of the convention says that the the rights of families should be uh, upheld, protected, that they should guide the children in the exercise of these rights in an age-appropriate fashion. What I really object to in the Senate resolution, and I think is so unfair and so misleading, is it's trying to somehow link the Obama administration with this plot to create a presumption in favor of governmental intervention in the family. That just seems to me so off base with respect to what the underlying intention behind the convention is. There would be no such result. I mean, tell parents in in uh, the European countries or in Japan or Canada, Australia, that, wow, their rights have been subverted. They, they'd look at you not understanding what you're even talking about. This is a question of the United States participating in an international human rights regime, which has its hypocrisies, it has its inadequacies, but the assumption also that we're doing everything right and that our Constitution can't be improved by kind of comparing constitutional terms with international ideas, even if not standards in the ordinary sense, I, I think is just is false, as if we have nothing to learn from the international community whatsoever. But this language is inflammatory. It's misleading. Of course, it won't be ratified if you create a third ra- political third rail of this kind and say that ratification is tantamount to undermining the independence of the family under our constitutional understandings. And again, I'm reminded of the health care debate and pulling the plug on grandma. It just seems to me woefully unfair. And Sarah, can we get your contact information for our listeners? Sure. Uh, I'm at Suffolk University Law School, and you can write to me by email, sdillon at suffolk.edu, and I'd be happy to hear from anybody. Great. And Michael, let's turn it over to you. Wrap it up with your final thoughts and your contact information, please. Well, uh, Professor Van Buren from the University of London, who helped draft the Convention on the Rights of the Child wrote, the best interest standards provide decision and policymakers with the authority to substitute their own decision for either the child's or the parent, providing it's based on the best interest of the child. That's what, uh, that's the legal standard that we're adopting. It's the ability of the government to substitute their judgment for parents. And well, We do uh, that now, Michael. I mean, the best interest of the child is determined by a judge, not the child. Only after proof of harm. And, and, and so that's, that's the difference. It's a huge difference to say that you, the government can do that in every case and to say that the government can do that when there's been proof of abuse or neglect or there's other, other forms of harm or the family's broken in a, you know, in, a, in a divorce context. But the examples that we've given, every one of our examples are real examples, either from the Committee on the Rights of the Child statements or statements by authoritative sources like Professor Van Buren from the University of London or from the American Bar Association in their book supporting the ratification of the treaty. We quote them. We do not quote anyone other than official sources or proponent sources in anything that we've said. And the idea that these are extreme Actually, it's just the examples. Uh, these are not general platitudes. If America wanted to adopt uh, a, a statement of general platitudes about children, we've already had done that. In the 1950s, there were relative, there were declarations for about children from the UN that 
announce some general principles and stating general principles that are help guide political decisions. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. It's the use of international law. And so these aren't guiding principles. These aren't, aren't lights to uh, light our way or anything like that. In America, it's law. And so the examples that she appeals to and you know asks the people in Japan and England and so on, well, they don't have constitutions like ours. And so ask, ask the people in South Africa, ask the people in other countries where they do implement it. And, and you'll see the South African courts implementing the Convention on the Rights of the Child in a way that does not require self-execution. And uh, you see the courts implementing it directly. And I don't think we're going to re- like the results that, that are attaining in South Africa. Well, Michael, let's get your contact information for our listeners. Uh, parentalrights.org is the website, and all the contact there, you know, the general uh, uh, email address there is info at parentalrights.org. All right. Well, that does it for this week's Lawyer to Lawyer. And remember, you can check out all of our Lawyer to Lawyer shows at legaltalknetwork.com. And we'd like to extend a very special thanks to our two guests, Sarah Dillon and Michael Ferris, for being with us today. And all of our shows are available on iTunes as well. Remember, you can now get CLE credit through the West Legal Ed Center for listening to select Legal Talk Network podcasts. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and click on West Legal Ed Center. You can find all of our Legal Talk Network shows on iTunes. And we'll be back again next week to discuss another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. We'll see you soon. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network. Its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.